Thank you, Coulter. Again, good morning, church family. It was 587 B.C., long time ago, which the city of Jerusalem was besieged by Nebuchadnezzar in the most powerful empire that had ever walked the face of the earth. In just one year, the siege led to the fall. And Nebuchadnezzar and his troops and his generals marched into the city of Jerusalem where they knocked down the walls, they burnt the temple to the ground, and they killed almost everyone in it. Those that they didn't kill or leave for dead, the young, the wise, the able-bodied, were dragged off to a foreign country to become strangers in a strange land, to be people without a country, without a culture, without a language, without a home, surrounded by new gods, new traditions, and a completely new culture. To anyone that's ever faced that, and that is so outside of our context, it's hard for us to imagine. But for anyone facing that, for Jews then, and for anybody who's a refugee now, you are often faced with two seemingly static choices. Either you fight or you run. Either you confront or you just become. Either you revolt or you isolate. Do you rage against an empire that you don't agree with or do you become like the empire? It's a tough choice. Do you stay Jewish or do you become Babylonian? But in what Coulter just read, the prophets give us a different vision. Jeremiah 29, 7, Jeremiah speaking to these people, these refugees away from their home country, what you just heard was the wisdom of a third way. He says, stay. Make prosperous the country. Pray for Babylon. Grow families. Build homes. Jeremiah speaking to these strangers in a strange land says, be in exile. Don't compromise. Don't rebel in war, but become a faithful exile. If you're not familiar with that term, the switch we're making in the text today, in chapter 18 of the story, is this small part of the text, but it is very, very influential on the text. It's a switch in the text where the people of God have got to now discover what happens to them when they are no longer in a familiar place. An exile is someone who is living in a certain location, but yet whose citizenship comes from somewhere else. In the text, Daniel and Esther are specifically designed to give hope to the exile but also to inspire the exile to be faithful so that they can answer this one big question. Exilic language in the text, which exists, as you'll see later in the New Testament, is trying to answer this question. Who are the people of God when the things of God disappear? For the Jews in 586 B.C. and beyond, who will they be when there's no longer a temple, 
No longer a gathering place. No longer a system of celebration and sacrifice and worship. Who do they become when all that they've known is lost and all that they even took for granted is no more? Those are questions of great importance. Not just for people 2,500 years ago, but for us today. Because we find ourselves in a similar situation. Having to answer questions like this for Christians, what do you do when church attendance in the United States has dropped in the past 20 years by 40 million people? 40 million less people attend church at least once a month in the U.S. than they did just 20 years ago. Other questions like how do we respond to a wider culture that seems to be moving away from once common held ethics and morality and standards. And maybe even more importantly, who are we when you no longer hold a majority position in the public space? Those are questions of exile. Daniel and his friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we're trying to answer that question. And today, we find ourselves as exiles. But what you'll soon see as we jump into the text is that exile is not bad news. In fact, what you might see today is that this is exactly where God wants us. Let's pray as we jump in this morning. Ask God's blessing. Our Father and Lord, we ask for your wisdom, your insight, the transformation provided by your Holy Spirit to come today. Help us to see what it means to be people of faithfulness and faith and the people who not only have the promise of heaven but carry the promise of Jesus out into the world every day, how we live that out. Bless us in that today, Lord. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So grab those Bibles this morning. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 1. We're going to stick there for most of our time this morning. And when we open this up, what I want you to follow along with as we jump into verse 3, what I want you to pay attention to is this not so subtle. It's very plain. You You won't have to strain much to hear it. But this subtle way, not so subtle way, that Babylon is going to push for conformity, for assimilation. Let's jump in. Verse 3. Here's what happens to Daniel and his friends. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that were to enter into the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, 
Abednego. That's hard to miss, right? Here in these four or five verses, these young Jewish men who have been taken from their home country are now spending three years relearning everything. Everything they knew so that the ways of Babylon could become their ways. Relearn language, dress, culture, food, even so much that their names were being changed. Your name used to be Hananiah, which meant Yahweh is gracious. It's now Shadrach, which means commanded by the Babylonian god Aku. Your name was Mishael, which is a great Hebrew name. If you're named Mishael, this is the version of Mishael. It means who is like our Lord Yahweh. But they switch his name to Meshach, who is like the Babylonian god Aku. It's out and out assimilation. This is full identity change. We want to take the people of Israel and turn them into the people of Babylon. Can you imagine that? You probably on small scales can imagine what this is like if you've ever traveled to another country. We love the comfortability of what is familiar. When we were in Chile this summer, as we were coming back after seven days in Chile, uh, we were flying from La Serena back to Santiago, the capital of Chile, and that is a huge international airport. And when we got to that airport and we walked into the terminal where we were supposed to go, most of our 17 people saw a beautiful vision. It was the golden arches. They saw those beautiful yellow giant M. And they went straight for McDonald's. Why? Well, it's not because McDonald's is good. They were like, oh, best restaurant in the airport right there, right? There was definitely better options. But the first thing they did was run for McDonald's, not because it's tasty, but because it's comforting. We had eaten different cuisine throughout the week, Chilean food, which is a lot of mayonnaise. It's kind of bland food. Not a lot of salsa like we thought there would be. And we were longing for some good old American preservatives, dadgummit. Right? Enough of that natural whole food. Give me some carcinogens, right? Where a better place than McDonald's? But we then, on some small scale, I use that story because we can relate to this example of exile. What exile is, is having the foundation of what you know and what is comfortable be taken away and replaced by something you've never had. Language, thought, traditions, culture, belief. But I want to keep going. Because not only do I want you to see that what's happening is assimilation of Daniel and his friends, we need to really lean into how Daniel responds. Because again, the book is about how do we live when what is familiar the things of God are taken away. Let's pick it back up. This time as we read 8 through 17, it's a little bit long. I want you to pay attention specifically to Daniel's response. So verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. 
Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than any of the other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over him, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. And treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who had ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. And notice, faced with an incredible pressure to conform, Daniel doesn't. Yes, he is becoming a Babylonian official, but he is not letting his identity be taken away. He uses this deep and shows this deep wisdom to still follow God in a world where God has been pushed at best to the margins, but simply, really, God has been pushed off the page. And what Daniel does is three things. And we're just going to focus our mind on these things. He resolves, he resists, and he rests. There in verse 8, it's clear. It says it in the text. The other two I kind of alluded to in the text. But the first thing he does in verse 8 is it says Daniel resolved. Out of his resolve, then he resists. He comes up with a plan and says, I don't need your, your lobster and your pork belly. I assume it was non-kosher, right? I'm not going to pick up those things. Give me celery and carrots and spinach instead. And then... Out of that resistance, he rests in the trust and the faithfulness that God is going to take care of him. He's going to trust the story. But what Daniel is actually doing here is he's answering the question. The secret of being in exile, where we get resolve and resistance and rest from, is that we realize this great truth, is that the absence of God does not mean God is absent. Daniel is showing us for ancient times, but also for modern and present times, how to be exiles. So I want to dig in just a little bit to this one word of resolve real quick. He resolves. Verse 8 tells us that in Hebrew, that word is very similar to what you think of. You know, we don't, you may have set resolutions you may resolve to do something. In Hebrew, the word literally means this. It means to appoint or assign or determine. I love that definition. What that means is this. Daniel, when faced with exile, had already set or appointed or determined who he was going to be. It wasn't an option. This was a line that he wasn't going to cross. It was a non-negotiable. He was going to stick with the kosher food laws that he believed in. Later in the text, 
his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they have this same resolve in chapter 3. Worship and when the music starts, stand up and sing to this, you know, sing to this idol, right? And they're like, we're not going to do that. They have resolve. Now what, I guess a way we can think about it that is this. As I've heard it put this way before, all of us make two kinds of decisions in our lives. We all make foreground or background decisions. Foregrounder decisions are the hundreds of decisions you make, to de- make every day. They're decisions in your life that you go through and you go, okay, this is what I decided to put on today. You get in your closet and you try to figure it out, right? I was today was like, it's not cold. I'll wear a polo. And then I stepped outside and I was like, what am I doing, right? Didn't, didn't make a great foreground decision. Foreground decisions are, what do I wear? What do I eat? Those types of decisions. Background decisions are decisions that aren't just about what is in front of you. They are decisions of identity. They're decisions of who will I be when a situation arises. Background decisions are determinant, meaning they are what you're dedicated to. So they are what we are resolved to do. Not what I might or what may happen. It's not what I might change my mind about if something better comes along. A background decision is not based on comfortability or what's easy in the moment, it's based in identity. It's what is set. Who I am and who I want to become. If you struggle with FOMO, anybody struggle with FOMO in here? Fear of missing out? You struggle with FOMO because you don't have enough background decisions in your life. You have made everything foreground decisions. Who am I going to be today? I don't know, whatever comes along, right? Background decisions set your feet in who you're going to be. Now, that should challenge us because the resolve of Daniel comes from a background decision that no matter if he was taken from his land and he was taken from his traditions and he was taken from everything he knew about God, that meant he still wasn't going to lose God. He was going to be a faithful exile. Maybe today it's time for, on this first Sunday of 2024, for some better background decisions. One that's appointed and determined and assigned in our lives. Part of who I am is going to be a person who spends daily time with Jesus. That's a background decision, not a foreground decision. Church community is not a foreground decision. It's a background decision of I am going to spend my life blessing others who walk with Jesus so we can find others who want Jesus. That's a background decision. Background decision is I'm going to be generous and giving and loving. Those things are the decisions maybe we need to be faced with today. Now, I want you to hear this because some of us might be saying, well, that's great for Daniel, but we're no longer exiles, Jake. We're not living in Babylon. Ah, 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 ah. You are living in Babylon. Everybody's living in Babylon. And I'll show you in the New Testament where that comes out. We just, you may not be living in Babylon by name, but we are exiles. 
Because in the New Testament, the New Testament context is always connected to exile. The New Testament writers come along and they pick up on the language of Daniel and Esther and other places and they say, this is who we are. What was in the imagination of the early followers of Jesus was we don't live at home. So a few passages here real quick. Exiles today. This is who we are. Philippians 3.20. Paul says it plainly. And he's speaking to people that are Roman citizens and people who are not Roman citizens. And he's telling them, this is probably the argument going on, if you know anything about Philippians, the argument going on between Yodi and Syntyche probably has to do with one of them's a Roman citizen and one's not. One of them has citizenship and one's somebody who's of a lesser class. And what Paul tells them to resolve this is he says, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord. Another way to interpret that uh, passage there is he's saying, you are citizens of another place. I've seen this. There's some, some versions of, of the English Bible that says, we are a colony of heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there. The idea is, as you have come to know Jesus, you are now a person of Jesus living out the life of Jesus in a strange land. You are an exile. Or 2 Corinthians 5.20, where Paul even says it even plainer. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Further than even what he says in Philippians 3.20 is you can't be an ambassador if this world is your home. An ambassador is somebody who goes to another place. You with me? You are an ambassador of heaven. You are an exile in a strange land saying there is a better way. And then also in 1 Peter 2, maybe the plainest use of this exile language comes in verses 11 and 12 where Peter just says it plainly, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. As foreigners and exiles. The New Testament is telling Christians, learn from Daniel and have a resolve. Learn to resist the conformity and the assimilation of culture, not through the way that we often do. Maybe that's a sermon for another day. But you resist mostly by resting in God. Now, as kids, one of my favorite VBS songs, especially when I was little, was... The VBS song, I want to be like Daniel. Y'all remember that? I want to be like Ruth. And I think I liked it just because it got us to stand up a little bit. So all the boys would stand up and we'd sing, I want to be like Daniel. Then you'd sit back down and the girls would stand up and they'd say, I want to be like Ruth. It's a good song. But not to burst anybody's VBS bubble, the reasoning that we wanted to be like Daniel given in the song and the reason the little girls wanted to be like Ruth given in the song is awful. <laughs> It's terrible. Theologically and biblically, it's, it's terrible. I want to be like Daniel because Daniel was a mighty man, right? Where's that in the text? Right? I want to be like Ruth because she was so good and kind. Nope. Nope. Ruth was an outcast Moabite woman. She was a scandal. 
oh, she's so good and kind. That's what little Christian girls should be. Nope. You should be resistant because you put your rest in the love of God. Ruth is a rebel and in exile because she, even though other Jews would say you don't belong, she said, Yahweh says I do. Right? And Daniel, it's not about this masculinity, toxic masculinity of, look, I'm tougher than everybody else. <laughs> right? Right? That's not what Daniel's about. Daniel is about this person. I want to be like Daniel. I know it doesn't go with the song. I want to be like Daniel because Daniel resisted empire, right? It doesn't quite rhyme, but that's the heart of this. I want to be like Daniel because Daniel figures out without offending the culture and without trying to force the culture to be like him, he still subverts the culture to see who God is. What a novel idea, church. What the church often of today does is instead of us trying to rally people to Jesus through our kindness, our goodness, and our faithfulness, we often try to force people into our way of thinking through legislation, might, and right. And that is not the way of exile. Daniel does it because he resolves in his relationship with God he makes background decisions, and then he resists through creative subversion, born out of his rest in the Lord. So in the late second century, there was an advisor to the Roman emperor. This advisor's name we know was Diognetus. And Diognetus wanted to know in the second century, this is Sometime between 150, this is early Christianity, right? Christianity is just about 100 years old. And Diognetus asks his friend Mathetes. He says, we want you, Mathetes, to go find out about this group of people who call themselves Christians. I want, you, I want to know about their lifestyle, their belief, their practices. And so Mathetes goes and he writes this long letter. You can look it up. It's really long. Here's a section of how he describes the Christians. I want you to hear this. This is so, this is so amazing. This is early, early Christianity. Here's what Mathetes writes in his epistle to Diognetus. He says, For the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country nor language nor the customs which they observe. They neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked by, out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like, nor do they like some, proclaim themselves to be advocates of any merely human doctrine. But... They inhabit Greek as well as barbarian cities according as a lot of each of them has determined and follow the customs of the natives in respect to the way that they clothe themselves and the food that they eat and the rest of their ordinary conduct. They display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life, though. They dwell in their own countries, but as sojourners, as citizens, they share in all things with other people, Yet they endure life as if they're foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth 
is a land of strangers. That's a real good way of saying no matter where they go, they have the same citizenship of heaven. And here's how he describes the rest of their life. They marry, as do all others. They beget children, but they never destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but they share no common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after their flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of another place. They obey the prescribed laws and at the same time surpass the laws of their lives. They love all men. They're persecuted by all. They are known and unknown and condemned. They are put to death and yet somehow still restored to life. They are poor yet seem rich. They lack in all physical things, yet they abound in all physical things. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor, they are glorified. They are evil, spoken of, and yet they are still justified. They are reviled by others, and yet they return that revilement with blessing. They are insulted, and they repay insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished by this world as evildoers. And the letter goes on. What a description. Can you imagine why Christianity blew up across the ancient world? In cities and in towns everywhere? What a beautiful description of what it means to be in exile. And so this morning I want to just challenge us as we finish up. To live those sorts of lives. And you may be saying this morning, I don't know how to live that kind of life. When I'm insulted, I want to do what? I want to repay. When I'm dragged through the dirt, I want to drag somebody through the dirt. When something goes wrong, I want to return wrong. So what do we do? We're all pulled in that way, and surely Daniel was as well. So what do we do? I think we learn how to be in exile. Daniel begins his journey in Babylon with a fast. It's an Eden fast. He says, I'm going to give up meat, and I'm going to go back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, Those of you that are big meat eaters, sorry, the Garden of Eden had no meat. If you read it literally, you may say, oh, is is that what heaven's going to be like? I don't know. I don't know. You may want to go. I don't know. Some of you might be like, well, I'm going to hell. (laughs) Uh, Don't go there. But what we see in Daniel is this incredible ability to say, I want God. And so he changes those around him, not through coercion or through power or might. He changes because he spends time with the Lord. So I want to encourage you as we begin 2024. If you've never fasted before, start small, but start challenging. Do something this week. Give up a habit, a hang-up, a distraction. I had resolved a few weeks ago, and then I realized my mistake. A few weeks ago, I was like, all right, those seven days of our first fast, I'll just tell you, church family, I was like, giving up TV, no TV. And then I didn't look at the college football schedule. The national championship is tomorrow night. But I'm going to stick with my fast. So nobody talk to me for a week. I'll watch it next Monday. (laughs) Right? But that's easy. But yet it's going to afford me time in the evenings where instead of just being distracted, spend time with the Lord. 
encourage you to be about that. Get with your life group. Figure that out. Whatever it is. Let us start 2024, not with inspiration, not with us saying, oh, I've got to be inspired to take a step. Simply walk in step with the Lord and see what he does. Whatever you need this morning, we're here for you. Let's live as exiles as we start this year out. Let's stand and sing.